Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. what we'll be looking and we'll be reading into actually chapter 3 as well. So you know how this works once I get my glasses on. We make you stand up again. Sorry. Sorry. So if you're willing and able in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand once again as we read Mark chapter 2 into verse into, into chapter 3. Starting at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Every word of it is true, and he's given it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and ask him to bless us. You got angry right there, right in front of us in this passage. You showed compassion to the broken, but with those who were hard-hearted and resistant and sought to step in the way of the redemption you were bringing, you got angry. And so we pray that you, you who are gentle and lowly in heart, the way we just read about earlier this morning, and who gets angry, we pray to you, that this morning we would see a right. That we would see you both in your lowliness and gentleness and also in your anger. We pray that you would show us our hearts. 
Show us our lives. Enable us to follow properly. And we pray for friends who are here this morning that questions they have about you, you would answer. Would you bless us and would you be with us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Have a seat. There we go. I think I might raise this up. Let's dump everything on the floor. Come on, come on, come on. There we go. Sorry. All right. Okay. Well, I'm about to read something that played out in real time on Twitter. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, in case you're wondering, you're, my handle or anything like that. I'm just, I just don't do that. So this came through other social media. But it was, happened at real, in real time, you know, tweet after tweet after tweet. So a person said, uh, tweeted, I, I sit in a busy cafe reading a book with a cup of tea and a pastry. And the lady sitting opposite me, engrossed in her newspaper, has just taken a bite of my pastry. I've done the only thing I could do and ignored that it happened and taken a spoonful myself. She is now pretending that didn't happen. She's taken another piece. I'm going to take a bite again and move it closer to me, but she beat me to it. She went for a double helping, and I swear she just slid the plate ever so closer to her side. She's not even blinking. I just looked her right in the eyes and dragged the plate back to my side. It screeched all the way across the table. She's looking at me as if I'm a disease. Nobody is touching the pastry. There's about a mouthful left on the plate. I'm going to, leave, I'm going to have to leave soon. I'll grab the last piece as I go. I paid for it after all. So I just grabbed the last piece, stuffed it in my mouth, and said with my mouth full, enjoy your coffee. And as I picked up my newspaper to leave, there it was, my pastry. <laughs> I've been eating a complete stranger's food. Uh, so if you ever get kicked off of any, uh, Twitter for anything, that should be it right there. So now if you can understand the story, then you can understand Mark 2. Because uh, Mark 2 highlights the growing animosity and frustration that religious leaders in Judea were experiencing towards Jesus because... Uh, they thought he was eating their pastry, but it was his pastry the whole time. So he's acting like the owner here, but they're saying, no, 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 this is ours. And so every positive thing Jesus does in this passage in chapter 2 is criticized by the Jewish leaders. Now, Jesus has been performing miraculous works on behalf of people. He's, he's uh, cleansed a leper. He's healed a lep uh, somebody with paralysis, uh, constantly working to bring about positive change in people's lives, and because of what Jesus, because of what he was doing was so fantastic, mesmerizing, and captivating, the cultural powers began to investigate what Jesus was doing. Now, the cultural power center in Judea at that time was really religious. It was what we have come to find out are the Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, so these were the Jewish uh, religious cultural leaders. There were some people that actually had power in the Sanhedrin, but these were people who had the, the hearts of all of the people. And they, these Pharisees were incredibly committed to following all of these ceremonial rules in order to do what they felt God would call them to do. And Jesus didn't play by their rules at all. In fact, in what he did and what he said, he challenged almost all of their major talking points. And so they were becoming disgruntled and uh, kept trying to slide the plate closer to themselves, but Jesus kept pulling it closer to him to say, no, this is actually mine. 
And because Jesus acted like the true owners, we see by the end of the passage in chapter 3 that the Pharisees felt threatened by him enough to join with the Herodians, and the Pharisees and the Herodians hated one another, but they decided that they both hated Jesus enough to begin to plot his death and his demise, to destroy him. So that's the background. And we're going to talk about three things this morning. The heart challenge of Jesus to all of us, the viral appeal of Jesus, and the following, and what it means to follow Jesus in a challenging culture with all the things that are thrown at us. Sound good? Good. Okay. Nobody nodded, but I assume in your heart you said, yes, it sounds great. Okay. The heart challenge of Jesus. Reading back Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. We, again, we read, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched, this is the Pharisees and the scribes and others, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately had held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, it would be very easy for us as Americans to look at the group of Jewish leaders here and say, yeah, clearly they are the villains, right? Religious people are bad. That would fit right in with an American narrative, right? But we might miss the bigger picture here that every culture has cultural beliefs that uh, lead people in those cultures to reject the claims of the gospel. And it's true for us as Americans. Some of those are religion, power, authority, other things that people feel are a problem with religion. So it would be, you know, really hard, it'd be really easy for us within our cultural views and values to say it has to do with just religion. But there's more going on in this passage. Let me walk you through this a little bit. One is, and you all know this, is that Jesus is teaching something that is not, that is really outside of their cultural expectations of how preachers are supposed to sound. And when something new is introduced, we don't like that very much. So some of it's just normal. We do this. I remember growing up in the 1970s, uh, which kind of places where I am, is there was a real push in school to do away with uh, the standard measurement system and bring in the metric system. Do you all remember? Were any of you all around for this? And I can remember the reaction that people were having. Like, why would we change measurement? Why can't we just, why do we have to call it 2.5 centimeters? Why can't we just say it's, is it right, 2.5? You can tell I've never learned the thing. So why, why can't we just call it an inch or a yard or a foot or a mile? Why do we have to change all of this? This is wrong and this is stupid. Why are we have to change in the way we've always measured things? Did y'all respond? My, that's the way my dad was responding to most of it. And so, you know, as I think back on it, the metric system was not a bad system at all. It kind of, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. But because everybody was used to the standard units of measurement, uh, it seemed like it was just changing it for the sake of change. And this is part of what culture does to us, is we had a standard of measurement that just felt normal. This is the way things are. This could never change. It's set in bedrock. It is set in stone in our minds. So it's, it's set in stone in our, the way we think about reality, because we have been shaped to think of uh, things in particular ways. Now, that's on the surface, Everybody is affected in some ways by our culture. Our cultural beliefs are like bedrock truths to us. No matter when you grew up or where you grew up, this is the way it is. But that's only on the surface here. 
Because Jesus is saying what's really at work in verse 5. He says, their hardness of heart. Their hardness, that's what Jesus is angry about. Their hardness, now that's kind of a reference to the Old Testament where people heard God's call, appeals to them to repent and return to him. And he's using that same kind of language here with these uh, New Testament scribes and, and, and Pharisees. And what's going on is something else besides Jesus calcifies their hearts towards Jesus. They're rejecting what Jesus is saying and doing because, not because their hearts are neutral and they're just looking as neutral observers, but because their hearts are given over to something else. This is what Jonathan Dickinson says about this phenomenon. He says, No man rejects the principles of Christianity because his reason runs counter to them, but because his desires control his reason and corrupt his judgment. That's where we all are. It's not just, we're not just creatures of reason or it's our affections, our desires of our heart make us reason in particular ways. Blaise Pascal said it this way, the heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of. So at one level, they've got these cultural things that are going, it's like, this is not, this is not the way we think about God. This is not right. But at another level, they've got some deep down heart convictions, values that they're holding on to that make them respond to Jesus with a deep animosity. We don't just disagree, but I can't stand this guy. I want to kill him. So what is this? Well, in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, Jesus gives us some insight into what was driving the scribes. And this is what we read. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, that devour widows' houses mean they kind of worm their way in to get their inheritance, probably. Something along those lines. As we ingratiate ourselves to people who are about to pass on so that we can get their property and their wealth. So, status, recognition, prominence, praise. That's what they're after. And Jesus won't play their game. He's not intent, he doesn't care about their prominence, recognition, or status. Uh, he, but he doesn't simply act as someone who doesn't care, but he acts as somebody who has authority over them and what they're doing and calling them back to repentance. So with the, with the Pharisees, it was a religion about rules. Whoever keeps the rules the best wins the game, and they get recognized for it. And whoever the most righteous people are, they get to make the rules for others. They get to be in the seats of power. So for them, in some ways, God was a means to an end. So they might say they were protecting the people and the truth, but it really wasn't about protecting the truth or the people. They were trying to protect what they already had. We don't want to lose the prominence. We don't want to lose that. And Jesus challenged all of their claims. So for them... They said, it's about what you do. That's what makes you right with God. But Jesus forgave sinners. He forgave them without them having to do anything. That challenged their, the Pharisees' assumptions. That was a huge blow to their performance righteousness. His disciples didn't fast, which challenged the fasting on street corners to be seen by men, which Jesus calls out in the Sermon on the Mount. They fast on corners. They disfigure their faces to show people they're fasting. He says, I've just removed that because you don't have to fast. Uh, Eating grain on the Sabbath challenged one of the pil pillars of their performance righteousness. That you, could, you had to keep all of these Sabbath laws 
that we'll talk about in just a little bit. It wasn't that they didn't have the right information about Jesus. They just didn't like the information they were, they were getting and receiving. And so how does this, what do we do with this? Well, one is to consider this. When you're tempted to shrug off Jesus in some way, ask yourself the question, is it him or is it me? Is it something, something he said bugs me, bothers me, he's overstepping his bounds, he's pulling the plate towards him, but no, 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 you can't have that. This is mine. This is mine. So, saw this firsthand several years ago. Oh, it's probably a decade or so now. Young man, I'm going to call him Eric, so I don't actually say his, uh, accidentally say his real name. Eric was in our campus ministry at Clemson. He showed up the first, we, have a, we had a large group thing. It was kind of like this, where it was, uh, we would sing and I would teach. And he came to the first one for the semester, and he loved it. He loved the music. He loved the teaching. He came and found me afterwards and said, we've never met, but can I get coffee with you? I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's go get coffee. So we went and got coffee, and he shared his life story and talked about you know, parents, struggles, his life. We talked about some deep things. And uh, we got to be pretty close uh, over you know, the course of that lunch and then getting to know each other for the next two years he was around. And he loved to sit under the teaching because he said, he said, I love God's grace. I love God's, uh, God's uh, love. I love the fact that he loves really, really broken people because I'm a broken people. And so he was just loving it. We'd be worshiping, and he'd have his hands up, and he'd be very kind of like out there with it. But then after about two years, and I knew, the, I knew some of his personal struggles with things, after two years, um, he stopped coming around. And he decided he wanted to get together with me and kind of talk about why that was. I said, yeah, I'd love to talk with you. I already knew what it was going to be about. But Eric, uh, was at, it was at the uh, McAllister's Deli in Clemson, South Carolina. And we're sitting there over club sandwiches. And he said that he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. And he doesn't want anything to do with Christians anymore. And I said, wow, okay, um, talk to me about this. And so... What he said about Christians, I was like, well, that's kind of true. We can be that way. And I said, but what do you think about Jesus now? Where, where are you with Jesus? And he said, and these were his words. He said, I'm disappointed with Jesus. And the reason he said that is in the course of the conversation was uh, he felt that, you know, Jesus was not open-minded enough for him. Gracious, loving, forgiving, but there were certain choices that this young man had made where he just could not could not follow Jesus anymore, and he couldn't be around Christians anymore. So what's going on? Kind of what we're seeing in this passage. And we all do this. It's not just him. It's, we all do this at some point. At the point where you find yourself sliding the plate back across and say, ah, I'm not going to give this into you just right now. We all do that. You know where I find myself doing that for myself? Is my own comfort. I'm not willing to give that up. I like the pastry. It's sugary. It's sweet. It's flaky. It's great. I love that. But that's for me personally. For some of you, it's going to be a little bit like probably the Pharisees here. Is I can't say no to anybody because I really, really love what other people think about me and say about me. That's part of my righteousness in my life. So I'm going to slide that one back too. I'm not going to, I can never say no to anybody. It looks like it's service, but there's other stuff that's going on. So, we look at Jesus, uh, you know, how do you deal with this? We all do this. Well, we look at Jesus and what he's really like. He healed, he rescued, he redeemed, he transformed, 
In this, all in this passage, he brought, uh, he brought and brings joy, he forgives sin, he spoke inconvenient truths and stepped into our lives, but when we encounter Jesus, we find someone and something that goes viral. Like in that culture, it was going viral, not, not in the sense of COVID, but you know how something goes viral online, like there's, there's a meme or something. So Jesus was going viral, and, and the Pharisees couldn't stop this from happening. Everybody was talking about Jesus, but something even deeper was taking place with people who were encountering Jesus, is Jesus wasn't just encountering a lot of people, but he was going deep into the hearts of people and transforming them and changing them from the inside out. And that's what we see here as we come into the next part of this passage. And what we see with Madeline Lingle is, do you remember her, like, Wind in the Door and uh, some other, what else did she write? Wrinkle in Time is the one she's most famous for. But she had this great quote about Christ years ago and talking about it's not about the following the rules the way that the Pharisees were, and it's not about showing other people where they're wrong. It really is about that encounter with Jesus. So what Madeline Lingle said is, we do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So throughout this passage, Jesus is communicating about his truth, his mission, his motivation. His, his fame was viral, but his impact was going viral. And uh, it was deep and pervasive. And it challenged the assumptions that people had. And the assumption that people had was, and a lot of us have this, a lot of people think that a Christian is a person who does all of the righteous things they don't want to do, and they avoid all of the wicked things that they do want to do in order to be right with a God that they really don't want to be with, but he has all the keys uh, to the afterlife. But that's not it. That's a person with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed by an encounter with Jesus in his grace, truth, and glory because they have found the light of Jesus so beautiful they want to follow him in every area of their life forever. So here's the light. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going to the grain fields, and as he and his disciples made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the, the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest. And we see it commanded in Scripture in the Ten Commandments in places like Exodus 20. Now remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On six days you shall labor and work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And so all work was to cease. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had come up with their own list of 39 categories. And uh, I thought about giving you some examples so you could see them, but it's a lot easier for you to go on Wikipedia and see those. So if you Google 39 and then Pharisees, Wikipedia comes up with, the, I think it's the Monarch or Monarch, I can't remember the actual Hebrew word for it, but it's the 39 rules that you have to keep on the Sabbath. So in verse 24... The Pharisees' disciples accuse uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They're breaking these thirty-nine rules of Jewish traditions. They reaped food by getting the grain and rubbing it in their hands and then eating it. Now, 
Jesus could have said, that's not what the Bible says. Those are your man-made rules. I don't have to follow your man-made rules. And that, would, that probably would have been enough. That's probably the way that I would have responded. Your rules, not mine, right? Uh, your monkeys, not my monkeys. Um, but Jesus doesn't. Instead, he gives them an example from the Old Testament about David. So the consecrated bread, the, the showbread, uh, the bread of the presence, as it refers to it in ESV, it was off limits to all but the priest, only the high priest. Yet King David, the true king of Israel, who at this point was, was not recognized by everybody as the true king because King Saul was still after him trying to kill him, he did, King David did what was unlawful for anybody to do except for the priest by eating the consecrated bread and he was not condemned or rebuked for it by God. Apparently, God wanted David to have it. And he gave it to the man of his own choosing, to David. It was God's temple. He could do what he wanted to do with the bread. So, in this passage, Jesus says something that clues us in to what's going on with him. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what he's referring to with the Son of Man, and we've talked about that a little bit in here, is his messianic role. He is the Son of Man that's talked about in Daniel chapter 7, 13, where he, Daniel saw in a vision someone like a Son of Man who, was, who came before the Ancient of Days, and he was given sovereign power and dominion forever. And when Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he's saying a couple of things. One, he's saying, I'm greater than David. I'm the Son of, I'm the son of Man. Which means I'm not, just giving, I'm not just receiving a pastry from somebody. The pastry is mine. And I can give it to whomever I choose to give it. This is my pastry and I can give it. And because he claims it back for, and he claims it back for proper use, and in 327 of Mark 2, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Jesus is approaching the Sabbath and faith and the, the laws and God in ways that are very different from the Pharisees and the scribes. Because the way that, they, and I thought about this, what, what would be an image for the way that they're thinking about this, that we have to keep this, this uh, Sabbath going in the way with all these rules and everything? And I thought, it's a little bit like a giant industrial age machine that's up and running and you can't stop it. We ha- our job is to keep this machine going as much as we possibly can by keeping all of these rules. And if we ever stop this machine from running, we're going to get in trouble. And there was actually thinking from the, the Pharisees at this point that if everybody in Israel would keep the Sabbath, would, if they would do that, and they would fast, maybe even on the Sabbath, they would do these things on the Sabbath, that God would come back the Messiah would actually come to the earth. That somehow through our works, their works, they could bring about the return of the Messiah. So there was rule upon rule to keep the Sabbath in addition to those already given into the Old Testament. So we've got our Old Testament rules to take the day off, but they added all these rules about what that really, really meant. But here's the beautiful thing about the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The Sabbath was kind of a vacation day that God had put on his calendar for every week to say, don't work. Come and be with me. It's a day of rest. So get in the hammock. Uh, Read the book. Gather with God's people. Have a party. Have a celebration. Be with God's people and come be with me. 
And for them to be able to do that, they had to stop working. Have you ever gone on vacation with somebody who uh, they, they get a project just before vacation and they say, would you mind if I took a little work with me on vacation? What happens? They don't take a vacation. So it's like, okay, I get to go to the beach by myself. I get to go to, uh, you know, the amusement park or wherever. You, what, what do y'all do on vacation? Um, we go to the mountains and on to the beach. I have to go hike by myself. I have to fend off bears by myself. Wouldn't you like to come do that with me? And Jesus says, uh, the Sabbath is not about your rules. It's about something else. And it's not about denial. It is about refraining from activities, but it's not about you sacrificing in that way. Because what the Lord's Day, what the Sabbath is really about, is about Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the rest. And that's the image. Because when he's talking about the rest, there's this image that comes through the whole Bible about the rest not just being on Saturday or the rest being on Sunday. The rest is, on, is coming someday in the future when Jesus comes back and everything is repaired, everything is fixed in the world, and we enter into a great cosmic rest, the peace of God. So in a place like Revelation 13, 14, we read this. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then the Spirit says, blessed indeed, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So he's saying, when we die or when Jesus comes back, we enter into a real rest where we don't have to work. So it has to do with the future. But when he's talking about the Sabbath here and the rest of, and Jesus being the rest, what he's saying is, Jesus himself is the rest. Because how do we enter into the presence of God? Not by our efforts, not by our works, but, but by repenting of our works and saying, I don't have to do any of these things because Jesus has accomplished them for me. So when we think about what it means to, to really have rest is to say, I don't have to obey to be right with God. Jesus was right for me. What I have to do is trust that Jesus has accomplished this for me. And when I believe that Jesus has accomplished this for me, it begins to transform and change my life. It begins to have that effect of working itself into my soul. It's not by following rules. Jesus says it's by following me. It's by believing in me. That's how we enter into the rest. That's why we don't have to do anything. So the, work, the Jew said we have to work to receive the blessing. And Jesus says that he himself is the blessing. And when you're in him, you receive that work. So with the Sabbath, we see that Jesus is our rest, but in this passage, we see that Jesus is everything. In chapter 2, verses 1 and following, Jesus is our forgiveness. With the tax collectors and with Levi, we see that Jesus is our health and our redemption. With the bridegroom and the wineskins, we see that Jesus is our joy. With the man with the withered hand, we see that Jesus is our restoration, even against the disapproval of others. So Jesus is saying everything that you're looking for in the world out there, whether it's rest or health or forgiveness, it's found in me. So, what do we do? We show, uh, we, we run to Jesus, and we show other people to Jesus, not to rules. So, rules would be easier. It'd be more cut and dry. But you can, I've, I've known people, and I've done this, if I keep the rules, and my heart hasn't changed, I fall back into the same patterns. So, I got a, a man that I know, and he asked me to pray for a friend of his, and his friend, it's not anybody in here, right? But his friend, I always feel like I have to say that because I'm always, because when I'm you and I'm sitting out there, I'm thinking, he's talking about somebody. Who is he talking about? Who looks guilty? Um, 
So he has a friend, and his friend is, um, he's gotten to a point in his life where he wants to change his life. He's like, I've got to make some changes. So he's doing external things to try to change his life. So he came to my friend and said, he's, my friend's a pastor, he said, uh, would you baptize me? And so he started talking to this man about the cha- what, what he wanted to do. And so what this man wanted to do was to add rules onto his life. But functionally, he wasn't really changing. And he'd been doing this for a long time. Because it's not simply a matter of adding rules to your life. The rules won't change you. They'll just pad your life and insulate the brokenness that's already there. So what has to happen is you have to have a deep heart change by Jesus. Let me show you how this works. So uh, there's a pastor, I've heard this story from a couple of times, and I really found it to be very helpful. Is there's a, is a, he tells the story of a woman who he knew that her life was ransacked by serial relationships with untrustworthy men. So she always found herself getting hurt. And she knew better, but she would find she would be in these relationships with men. They would eventually hurt her, and then she would have to get out of the relationship. And so it was the serial thing that happened year after year. And after years of repeating the same destructive pattern, she finally decided, there's something wrong with me. I need to go to therapy, which is good. And so she went to therapy, and after her therapist was listening for a while, her therapist told her something that was really true and helped her a lot. She said, you are grounding your identity, your sense of worth, and the things that are valuable in your life in men. And so you're telling yourself to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be whole. I have to be in a relationship with a man. And so she's constantly going through these serial relationships. She gets out of a bad relationship, and then the next man who comes, who can, it's like sharks. They can taste the, the chum in the water like, oh, here's, here's another victim. They go for her, and she just falls for them. Like, I need a man in my life. And so what her therapist said, you know what you need? You need a career. Because you need to find your identity in your career. You need to find something you can do, do it well, and find your identity there. Now, this pastor said this woman was, had the wherewithal thinking she knew that a career would be just as devastating upon her as serial relationships. Because her career would also ask too much of her. Her career would also let her down. And eventually, she's going to lose her career just like she lost those lost men. So she realized, you know what I need? I need Jesus. I need someone who's never going to let me down, who's never going to go away, who's going to love me no matter what, who's always going to be there for me through everything that I go through. He's not going to abuse me. He's not going to hurt me. He's not going to disappoint me in any way. I need him. So this is how it would work for her. So after the pastor went and saw her and recognized she hasn't been with a man in a long time because she was still a church-going person, he met with her and asked her what was going on. You know, she's like, I've seen a big change in your life. She said, well, here's what's going on. Is when I see a man now, because I'm human, I think, well, it would be nice to be with somebody. However, that man is not my life. Jesus is my life. So I don't just need any man. I'm looking for someone who is good in quality and that I can have a real relationship with. Do you see how that works? Okay. That's how this works is we need Jesus. We need him to say, he is my righteousness. He is everything that I need. And so what that means is it's not simply, Christianity is not a matter of like adding on rules. It's saying, I really am understanding Jesus at a deep level. So this is a quote from David Johnson and Jeff Van Vonderen. 
And these guys wrote, they've, they've written on church abuse. So this context in which they're writing this takes place in church abuse because a lot of times people who abuse others in the church, they love rules, they rule, love laws because people will, are easily controlled with that. But they're talking about a real healthy Christian, and this is what they write. How would you picture a Christian who is growing in godliness? Would they convey restfulness, which comes from being comfortable and at peace with God? Would they convey a sense of fulfillment, knowing that whatever spiritual work they were doing was in God's will, instead of feeling they had to keep striving for more perfection? Would their advice begin by directing you to Jesus, or would it cause you to focus on yourself and on your behavior? And ultimately, would this Christian bring with them a, a sense of life, which Paul describes as the sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ? So what, what are we learning from this passage? We're learning that Jesus is stepping into the lives of people who are broken, who are messed up, and instead of them changing and coming to Jesus, Jesus is coming to them. And he is the forgiveness. He is the rest. He is the one who brings the transformation. He's the one who brings spiritual health. He's the one, when, we, when he steps into our life, he brings those changes. We don't change to go to him. We go to him, and that enables us to be able to change because he's the great physician of our souls. He's the one who takes our burden. In this passage, we see that he healed, he rescued, he redeemed, he transformed, he brings joy, he forgives sin. And what he's calling us to do is to trust in him. You don't have to do anything to win God's favor, he says, because in Christ, in him, in Jesus, you already have that favor. And so what you do instead is living out of what you've already been given instead of trying to earn it. Let me pray and ask God to cause us to sink and settle in there is not a person in this room who is righteous because of what they've done there's not a single person on the planet who is righteous because of what they've done there's not a single person in history who is righteous because of what they've done let alone Jesus and because of Jesus I who am a broken person Father can stand before you and for that, I'm grateful. I'm grateful because my best efforts aren't good enough. Uh, I'm grateful because my worst efforts aren't dastardly enough to lose you, but you come chasing after me. And I'm grateful, Lord, that uh, that's true of all of us in here. I just tried really hard to express something. And uh, I'm aware that you speak in all the cracks, and in all the, uh, the broken places in what I said. I pray that you would speak through what I was trying to communicate for the sake of your, all the people who are here. Would you bless us? Would you be with us? We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would bless what we just talked about to our souls, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.